Well, welcome to week eight in our series, What Kind of God? Today, before I start, I want to read two passages, both written by the Apostle Paul. One's found in the book of Romans, and the other one's found in his letter to Timothy, his second letter to Timothy. And I want you to uh, look for the similarities. Um, see how what he has to say repeats itself. Uh, his letter to the Romans is dealing with, in chapter 1, um, God's righteous wrath against mankind for their sins. We looked at this last week in our, our look into the, the wrath of God, the attribute of His wrath. Listen to what he says. This is found in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 28. He says, Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, He abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things they never should have done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. He goes on. They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. Now, in this passage, Paul is describing the condition of the world post-fall, after the sin of Adam and Eve, when mankind came under the curse of God and sin entered into the world, uh, things took a dramatic turn for the worse. And he's describing just how bad things had gotten after uh, the fall. And so he describes all the different problems mankind has encountered. And we're familiar with all of these things. As a matter of fact, this sounds very much like the time in which we live. Well, let's fast forward. Paul is writing his second letter to Timothy. Now, Timothy is his uh, disciple. Uh, Paul is mentoring Timothy and raising this young man up to be a minister of the gospel. And in his letter to Timothy, this loving letter from a mentor to his mentee, listen to what he says. You should know this, Timothy. Now, this is chapter 3, starting in verse 1. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Then he goes on to say, Stay away from people like that. Now, what's fascinating about those two passages is, one, they're both written by the Apostle Paul, but one is describing the condition of the world immediately after the fall. The second one is describing the condition of the world in the last days. Um, and, and you see that not much has changed uh, between Romans chapter 1 and 2 Timothy chapter 3. And it doesn't take much for you and I to look around and see that everything that he described in both of those passages we see taking place all around us. And so as we continue our study on the attributes of God, 
And as we follow up our study on his attribute of wrath, his righteous wrath, we need to understand that there's, there's a reason for that wrath. There's a, um, a direction at which that wrath is pointed. And it's pointed at those who commit these kinds of sins. So last week we looked at Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then he goes on later, as we just read, and he describes exactly what that ungodliness and unrighteousness looks like. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The, the truth regarding God, that he exists, that he's holy, that he's righteous, that he has laws and rules by which man is, is to live, mankind is to live. And because God is holy, he can't tolerate sin. He can't just turn a blind eye. God can't just turn his back and go, boys will be boys. Because he's holy, he has to deal with sin. Because he's righteous, he has to punish sin. And we looked at all of this last week, but it's going to set up what we're going to talk about today, this next attribute of God. And because all have sinned, they all deserve punishment. You see the flow here. God's holy. He can't tolerate sin. He's righteous. He has to punish sin. And because, according to the Scriptures, all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, they all deserve punishment. And because the punishment for sin is death, everyone is condemned to die. Everyone. Man, boy, girl, woman, everyone is condemned to die. And, and to feel the full weight of the wrath of God. See, Romans 2, chapters 6 through 9 tells us God's going to render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. I don't think... Paul can make it any clearer than he has in this passage. God is going to bring wrath and fury on all those who obey unrighteousness, who deny the truth, the truth about God, and go their own way, live according to their own standard, follow their own will and way. So the wrath of God is real, and it's going to come in full fury against all those who stand opposed to God. He's going to pour out his wrath and fury. There's going to be tribulation. And we're seeing tribulation right now taking place all around our country. But that's not necessarily the wrath of God. But it is an example of the sinfulness of men. That we live in a day when everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. And we're seeing distress take place all around us. See, God, though, is going to bring His judgment on mankind in full and, and in righteousness. Remember, it's, it's a righteous wrath. It's, it's not uh, arbitrary. It's not flippant. It's not spur of the moment. It's based on His holiness and on His righteousness. He is going to deal like a just God with the sins of mankind. But here's the question 
we need to address today. How do we know that? How can we, as believers in God, followers of Jesus Christ, how can we know for sure that God's really going to deal with sin? When we look around us and it seems that sin is rampant, and those who commit sin seem to get away with it. So how do we know? Listen to Numbers chapter 23, verse 18. God is not a man, so he doesn't lie. Now that, that's a pretty bold slap in the face for those of us who are men. But he says, God's not a man, so he doesn't lie. He's not human, so he doesn't change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? Those are rhetorical questions. They're not asking for a response. The, the response is built in. The answer is no. God has never changed his mind in terms of saying he's going to do something and failing to do it. He's never spoken and then failed to act on what he has spoken. He's never promised and failed to keep his promise. He carries it through to the end. So that's how we can know that when God says he's going to punish sin, we can trust what he has to say. He will render to all according to his works. All those who stand opposed to God and outside of a saving relationship with Jesus Christ will face the full fury and wrath of God. See, in Psalms it tells us, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. The faithfulness of God is one of the attributes that we fail to look at. And because we fail to look at it, we fail to, to fully appreciate it. And hopefully today, as we dig into this particular attribute of God, we'll understand that God is faithful in all things. He is faithful in His wrath. He is faithful in His love. God always does what He says He's going to do. Now, as you know by now, I, I love A.W. Pink, and this is a quote from his book, The Attributes of God. Now, listen to what he says. God has not only told us the best, but he has not withheld the worst. In other words, God doesn't play, play fast and loose. He, he, um, he doesn't do a bait and switch with us. He's told us the best. He's told us the good things, but he's also told us the bad things. He has faithfully described the ruin which the fall has affected. He has faithfully diagnosed the terrible state which sin has produced. He has faithfully made known his inveterate hatred of evil, and that he must punish the same. He has faithfully warned us that he is a consuming fire, according to Hebrews 12.29. His word records numerous examples of his faithfulness in making good his threatenings. Now that's a mouthful. But what A.W. Pink is telling you and I is that God is faithful and that God is going to do what he said he's going to do when it comes to pouring out his wrath on a sinful humanity. He will do it. He will fulfill it. He will complete it. Why? Because of his faithfulness. See, his faithfulness is huge. Proverbs 11.21 tells us evil people will surely be punished. It's a sure thing. If you want to put your money down on something, you can, you can guarantee that you're going to get a good return on your investment with this promise. Evil people will surely be punished. 
Proverbs 11.23 says, The wicked can expect only judgment. Now, the problem we run into is that in this life, they seem to enjoy themselves. They seem to get reward. They seem to benefit from their sinfulness. But we got to keep in mind that God's full wrath will not be poured out until the end. And so the wicked can expect only judgment. Romans 2.28, He, God, will pour out His anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. He will pour out His wrath because He's faithful, because He always does what He says He's going to do. Let's fast forward all the way to the last book of the Bible. A, a Reve Revelation 11.18 says, The nations were filled with wrath, but now the time of your wrath has come. It's time to judge the dead and reward your servants, the prophets, as well as your holy people and all who fear your name, from the least to the greatest. It is time to destroy all who have caused destruction on the earth. See, this is the end. This, this is the end of the story, the last chapter of the Bible. And God is telling us through the Apostle John and the vision that he gave him that just wait. Don't panic. Don't worry. Don't lose hope. Don't lose faith because God is faithful and he will do what he's promised to do. There will come a time when he does bring destruction on all mankind. And I know what you're thinking. You, you, you're teaching the same lesson over again. We did this last week. Well, it's important that we understand that his faithfulness applies not only to the good things, as A.W. Pink says, the good things that God has in store for us, but it also applies to the punishment he has in store for all those who stand apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, his son. See, there's good news. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, you, Christians living in Thessalonica, are looking forward to the coming of God's son from heaven. Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, he is the one who has rescued us from terrors, from the terrors of the coming judgment. See, the good news is, because of our saving relationship with Jesus Christ, we have been rescued from the wrath to come. It doesn't eliminate the wrath to come, but it extricates us from it. I don't have to worry about it, neither do you. That's the good news. But it doesn't get rid of the bad news for all of those who stand outside of a relationship with Christ. So today as we continue to plow through these attributes of God, we want to discover what kind of God it is we worship. And the kind of God we worship is a faithful God. He is faithful in all things, as we saw. Psalm 89 verses 1 through 2 says, I will sing of the Lord's unfailing love forever. Young and old will hear of your faithfulness. Your unfailing love will last forever. Your faithfulness is an, as, as, as enduring as the heavens. It, it's always been there and always will be there. His, his faithfulness never wavers and never wanes. It never goes away and it never fails. And you and I as Christ followers need to grasp that truth and hold on to it because we can trust our God for everything that He has promised us because He is faithful. He has always been faithful. 
That word faithful in the Old and New Testament has a lot of different connotations to it. One of them is that he is trustworthy and true. You can trust him. The image in the Old Testament word is one of, of something that is reliable, that you can lean on, that you can trust in, you can hang on to and, and know that it won't fail you. He's reliable and dependable. Whenever we put our faith, put our hope, put our trust in the faithfulness of God, we will never be disappointed. That's what this is all about. It's steady and it's totally unwavering. Now, you and I attempt to be faithful. We attempt to be someone who can be trusted, but we often disappoint those who trust us most because we have a sin nature, because we are selfish and self-centered too often. But see, that's not a problem that God has. He is holy in, in all of His attributes, including His faithfulness. So He is totally trustworthy and true. I love what A.W. Tozer says, Faithfulness is that in, in God which guarantees that He will never be or act inconsistent with Himself. What does that mean? Well, that means God is holy, God is righteous, God is just, and he is faithful. He will never act apart from his character. He'll never step outside of his character and do something unexpected. You know, you've probably had somebody say to you, well, gosh, that, that's not like you. I can't believe you said that. I can't believe you did that. Well, that's a reference to your unfaithfulness, that you aren't always faithful to be who you say you are. God is. God never steps outside of his character. He, he never fails to be consistent with who he is. So he's faithful, totally faithful in every way. A.W. Pink says, God is true. His word of promise is sure. In all his relations with his people, God is faithful. He may be safely relied upon. Man, in a world like we're living in right now where nothing can be relied upon, you can't rely on the media. You can't rely on politicians. You can't rely on your friends. You can't rely on anybody. You can rely on God. You can safely, safely rely upon God because God is faithful. He is faithful in all ways and at all times. I love Lamentations chapter 3. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. Great is his faithfulness. It's so great, it's immeasurable. His mercies begin afresh each morning. I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance, therefore I will hope in him. Why will I hope in him? Because his faithful love never ends. His mercies never cease. His faithfulness never wavers or wanes. So I hope in him. In the midst of all the circumstances surrounding me and the uncertainty of life, I can hope in God because He is faithful and God is true. Now, what I want to do is I want to go back into the Old Testament and I want to look at some proofs of God's faithfulness. And sometimes we don't look at these as proofs of God's faithfulness. We see them as interesting stories in the Bible. But the reason they're there is to encourage us, generations later, centuries later, of God's faithfulness. Now listen to this promise that God made to Noah. Now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. 
God observed all this corruption in the world, for everyone on earth was corrupt. Remember how Paul in chapter 1 of Romans described the world. So God said to Noah, I have decided to destroy all living creatures, for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe all out, wipe them all out along with the earth. So what's God telling Noah? He's telling Noah, he's promising Noah that I am fed up with the activities and the actions of mankind and I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And the sins of mankind were so great that they had affected the creative order. Violence filled the earth. And so he promises that he's going to destroy every living, living human being except Noah and his family. So he says, look, I'm about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will die. But I, <clears throat> now here's the promise. I will confirm my covenant with you. So enter the boat, you and your wife and your sons and their wives, bring a pair of every kind of animal, a male and female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. Now this is after God had given instructions to Noah to build an ark, to build a boat, which he had never seen before, in order to survive a flood, which Noah had never seen before. And Noah did this. He built the ark according to the directions and the plans of God, all on faith. And then God makes this promise, I will confirm my covenant, my promise with you, that I will spare you if you do as I've told you to do. And then it goes on in chapter 7, everything that breathed and lived on dry land died. God did what he said he was going to do. He was faithful to keep that promise. God wiped out every living thing on the earth, people, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky because they had no place to land. All were destroyed. The only people who survived were Noah and those with him in the boat. God kept his promise. God did what he said he was going to do. And then we read in chapter 7, the floodwaters covered the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah. Don't miss that. God remembered Noah. Where was Noah? Noah was in the ark with his family. Noah was in the ark with the, the animals that he had collected in order to protect them according to God's plan. God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and livestock with them in the boat. And then we're told that Noah, his wife, and his sons and their wives left the boat. The time came when God allowed them to leave the boat, provided for them. And they were able to step out of the boat, fully alive, fully redeemed, fully protected by God Almighty. And even all the large and small animals and birds came out of the boat, pair by pair. See, this, this is a picture of God keeping his promise. He promised to destroy the wicked, and he did. He promised to save Noah and his family, and he did. And then he makes another promise. I will never again curse the ground because of the human race, even though everything they think or imagine is bent towards evil from childhood. I will never again destroy all living things. As long as the earth remains, there will be planting and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. God is making a promise. And what's interesting in this promise, listen to what he says. I'll never again curse the ground because of the human race. I'll never destroy the earth again in this way. And, and he says, because 
everyone who lives on the earth think and imagine evil from childhood. Now stop for a second. Who's he talking to? No one is family. They're the only ones alive. Uh, he saved them. But really what he's saying is nothing's really changed because this scenario is going to repeat itself. And as we well know, being descendants of Noah, we live in a day when the evil of the world is all around us. And so God was faithful to keep his promise, but he knew that this was not the end of the story. God made a promise and he faithfully kept that promise. And he has kept that promise to not again curse the ground as he did then, ever since. We've had floods, we've, we've had tsunamis, we've had hurricanes, but we have never seen a destruction like took place in the days of Noah. God is faithful. God kept his promise and he's kept it for generations. Well, let's fast forward and look at Abraham. God makes a promise to Abraham. He calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees and he tells him that I'm going to do something with you. I'm going to make something of you. And here's what he said. He says, Abram, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them. And in the end, they will come away with great wealth. Now, this is a promise made to Abraham that we don't typically think about. We typically think of the one that has to do with, I'm going to take you out of Ur of the Chaldees. I'm going to take you to a land you've never been to. I'm going to take you to the land of Canaan. And I'm going to make of you a great nation. And I'm going to bless you with this inheritance, which you will then pass on to your progeny. But see, here he makes another promise. He tells them that those descendants are going to end up strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for more than 400 years. But then he says, in the end, they will come away with great wealth. This is a promise that God is making to Abraham concerning his descendants. And he says, you can be sure, you can trust. And yet when this promise is made, Abraham doesn't even have a son yet. He has no descendants. This, this is a promise made long before Isaac has shown up. And not only that, he's old and his wife is barren. Everything stands against this promise. Everything stands against him ever having descendants. And everything seems to stand against the fact that those, those descend, descendants will end up in slavery in a foreign land and then restored by God 400 years later and restored by God to such a degree that they come out wealthy. Well, God says, you can be sure. You can rest on it. You can bank on it because I'm faithful. You can be sure. And it's based on nothing more than his faithfulness. I said it and I will do it. As I did with Noah, I will do with you. You can trust me. In the end, everything will come out as I have said it will. Well, in chapter 12, verse 40 of Exodus, it tells us the people of Israel had lived in Egypt for 430 years. In fact, it was on the last day of the 430th year that all the Lord's forces left the land. 
On this night, the Lord kept His promise to bring His people out of the land of Egypt. After the ten plagues, after the Passover and the death of the firstborn, God redeems the people of Israel and He takes them out of captivity. And He begins His leading of them to the land of promise. God kept His promise once again. He was faithful to keep His promise to Abraham. And He proved, not only to Abraham, but to the people, the descendants of Abraham, that He is trustworthy and true. That what He says He will do, when He promises, He always keeps His promise. And, and, and that's a, an attribute about God that we tend to not think about enough. We don't look at these stories and we don't realize that they're pictures for us of the kind of God it is we worship. They're a revelation of the kind of God we say we believe in, that He is a faithful God. Now, I ran across a, an old hymn that's it's anonymous. Uh, it does have a tune to it. I'm not going to attempt to sing it to you, but look at the words of this old hymn. It says, I will never, never leave thee. I will never thee forsake. I will guide and save and keep thee for my name and mercy's sake. Fear no evil, fear no evil. Only all my counsel take. Just listen to me, God says. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm not going to abandon you. I will continue to guide you. I will continue to save you and keep you. Why? Because of my name's sake. Because it's who I am. And I'm not going to do anything outside of my character, God says. I'm not going to do anything that would defame or harm my name. So trust me. Lean on me. Obey me. Rest in me. Follow me. Now there's another promise I want us to look at. And it's also an Old Testament promise. And it's concerning the Messiah. All the way back in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, listen to what Isaiah writes. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. This is a messianic passage. It's a messianic prophecy that tells us of the Messiah to come. See, in this passage, God is making a promise. He's saying, I'm going to give you the sign. And the sign will be a virgin who conceives a child. That's a miracle. It's impossible for a virgin to conceive a child without having sexual relationships with a man. But the inference is here that she will be a virgin when she conceives. And then she will give birth to a son and his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. God's making a promise. And we know as followers of Christ that God faithfully kept that promise. For generations, from the time that it was written in Isaiah's day, all the way up until the New Testament and the Gospels. God faithfully fulfilled that promise, and we find it in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, they were engaged. They had had no sexual relationships. The marriage had not yet been consummated. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. He didn't know yet. He didn't understand what was going on. He found out his fiancée's pregnant, 
And he thinks the best thing I can do is just divorce her, put her, put her away. Because people are going to think we had sex outside of marriage. That's his plan. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She hasn't been with a man. This is a miracle. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now catch this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. See, a promise was made hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, generations earlier to the prophet Isaiah. And yet we know that God kept that promise because we've placed our faith in that promise, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. And in Galatians 4, 4, Paul writes this, when the fullness of time had come, that term is a term used of, of, of a full-term pregnancy. Something's about to happen. And how appropriate when referring to the birth of Christ. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, that's the good news. This promise was made hundreds of years earlier to Isaiah, and it was fulfilled with the birth of Jesus to Mary, a young virgin girl. God made a promise. God kept his promise because God is faithful. See, you and I can trust God to keep his word. But oftentimes we doubt it. Oftentimes we, we get panicky because circumstances don't appear to be going the way we expect them to go. But keep in mind how long it took for some of these promises for God that God had made to be fulfilled. The Israelites waited for 430 years before God redeemed them out of slavery. Noah had to ride on that ark for 150 days before he was able to finally walk out on dry land. Hundreds and hundreds of years, centuries went by before Mary gave birth to Emmanuel, God with us. But we can trust God's word. He's never failed to keep a commitment he's made. Man, I have. I, I do it on a regular basis. And yet my God never fails to do what he says he's going to do. I love this passage in Joshua. This is at the end of the book of Joshua. It's also at the end of Joshua's life. And he's telling the people of Israel as they prepare to finish the conquering of the land of Canaan, the land of promise. He tells them, not a single one of all the good promises the Lord had given to the family of Israel was left unfulfilled. Everything he had spoken came true. He's, he's reminding the people of Israel that, man, don't forget that everything God said he would do, he's done. He, he promised to get us out of Egypt, he did. He promised to lead us across the wilderness, he did. He promised to get us into the land, and he has. Not one of his promises has gone unfulfilled. Every one of them has come true. He says, you know that every promise of the Lord your God has come true. Not a single one has failed. And, and those two statements are ones that we need to remind each other with every day.
that not one thing that God has promised to us has gone unfulfilled. It may not yet have been fulfilled, but it will be. You know, we, we do not have complete fullness of joy in this life because we suffer and because we are living in the midst of sin, but we will. Everything God has promised, we will have, and we can rest in that promise. I love 1 Kings 8.56, Praise the Lord who has given rest to His people Israel, just as He promised. Not one word has failed of all the wonderful promises He gave through His servant Moses. Everything He told Moses He would do, He did. Or He will do. See, there are a lot of promises concerning Israel that God is yet to fulfill, but He will fulfill them. And those wonderful promises will be kept by God Almighty. But there, there's a final promise that I want us to look at, and it's God's promises to us. See, as followers of Jesus Christ, those who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, we have some incredible promises. And the first one is His promise to preserve us. His promise of preservation. Listen to this, Psalm 59, 2-3. I cry out to God Most High, to God who will fulfill His purpose for me. He will send help from heaven to rescue me, disgracing those who hound me. My God will send forth His unfailing love and faithfulness. See, what the psalmist is saying is that I can trust in God because I know He loves me. But beyond that, I know He's faithful and that He will do what He says He will do. He will preserve me and protect me. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, He will show you a way out so that you can endure. See, that's the kind of God we worship. That's the kind of God we have placed our faith in. But there's a second promise, and that's of His support. That He is going to come alongside and support us and hold us up. Remember, the, the Hebrew word for, for faithfulness is that He can be leaned on. He can hold us up in times of despair and in times of great need. I love what the prophet Isaiah says, Don't be afraid, for I am with you, God says. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. See, when times get tough, when difficulties surround us, when uncertainty bombards us, we can turn to God and we can know that He's going to hold us up with His victorious right hand. And in a moment like the one we're living in, we need to rely on that great truth. And that way, we don't have to live with discouragement, with defeat, with despair, with anger, resentment, fear, because we have a God who's going to hold us up. You know, Paul struggled with what he called a thorn in his flesh. But God, in, in response to Paul's multiple, multiple requests to remove that thorn, God said, no. And then he says, Paul, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. And then Paul responds, so now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, the hardships, the persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, here's Paul recognizing that 
man, I've got this thorn in the flesh. Whatever it was, we, we don't know. But whatever it was, he wanted it removed. Then God said, no, you need to lean on my grace. It's really all you need. You need to lean on me because my strength is all you need. See, here's a man that learned to lean on God, who learned to be content with God and was learning to live with his weaknesses and, and relishing his weaknesses because they drove him to lean on a God who is totally faithful. Well, there's a third promise, the promise of direction. God has promised to direct you and I. The psalmist says, the Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. So you've got a God, a faithful God, who's going to guide and direct you. Don't be afraid, he says, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I'm going to hold you up by my righteous right hand, my victorious right hand. See, we can trust God. He's going to guide us. He's going to direct us. He's the Lord our God who teaches us what's good for us and leads us along the paths we need to follow. But see, we've got to trust Him. We've got to turn to Him. We've got to lean on Him. We've got to rest in Him. And if we do, He will always prove to be faithful. And I love this promise, His promise of provision, that God will provide for all of our needs. Paul told the Philippians, this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. He's going to meet your needs. He is all sufficient. Everything you need, he will give. Now, that's not everything you want. Paul, in other places, talked about the fact that he had learned to live without. He had gone hungry. He, he had gone without food. He had been shipwrecked. He had been beaten. He had learned to live with needs that didn't get met by God. And yet he was content, he said. I've learned to be content because God provides everything that I need. The psalmist says, fear the Lord, you, his godly people. For those who fear him will have all they need. If you rest in him and trust in him, and if you believe in his faithfulness, he will prove himself to be faithful, providing everything that you need. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Think about that. God's going to meet all your needs to such a degree that you have more than you need so that you can share it with others. Now again, this is not God promising you health, wealth, and prosperity. This is God saying that all your needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs, and yes, even your financial needs will be met, but not so that you can be rich, not that you can be fat and happy and wealthy and whole, but so that God will get the glory. And so that you will recognize that these needs that you have have been met by a gracious, faithful God, and you'll be willing to share them with others because of the mercy and grace that he's shown you. Well, the last one is his promise of providential protection that God is providentially looking out for you, watching over you. And that providential protection is not just for the here and now, it's for eternity. It's got a long shelf life. 
I love what Paul told the Romans. We know, we're certain, we're for sure that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. God's got a purpose. You may not see it in the midst of it. Whatever the trial you're going through, whatever the difficulty you're encountering, you may not see the good of God, but it will show up in time because he's faithful. I love this from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. He, God, will keep you strong to the end. Remember, it's a, it's a long-term commitment. It's a faithfulness that has long-term ramifications. So that you will be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will do this, for He is faithful to do what He says. And He has invited you into partnership with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Once again, think of the implications of this. That God is watching over you now. He's providing for you now. He is protecting you now. But His protection is providential. It's long-term long in, in nature. And, and it's, it's going to stretch into eternity. He's going to protect you all the way to the day He glorifies you. As Jesus said, I, I have not lost a one that you have given me. All of us will make it to the end because of the providential protection of God. And again, Paul tells the Corinthians, we know that God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. It's a done deal. It's certain. You can rest in it. You can have certitude about God. You can have certitude about your future. You can have certitude about your present because God is faithful. So in times of uncertainty, we rest on this certitude of God, this, this certitude about God, that He is a faithful God. He's trust, trustworthy. He's reliable. He's totally dependent. He always keeps His promises. He always fulfills what He says He's going to do. See, He's the anchor for our soul. When our soul gets rocked, when the waves strike us, when we find everything failing around us, we can rest, we can put our anchor in God and find him to be sure. Hebrews 6 verses 18 through 19 says, He, we who have found refuge in him may find strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us through two unchangeable things, since it is impossible for God to lie. It's impossible. Can't do it. Never will do it. Never has done it. And we can rest in that certitude. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, sure and steadfast. We can trust God. Secondly, He's our strong tower. He's who we can run to in times of uncertainty. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe every time. There's never a time where that tower fails to hold up. There's never a time when you run to God and find everything falls apart around you. He is a strong tower, and then he's also our rock. And the picture here is, is of a rock of great size and great girth that is immovable and unshakable, and, and you can stand on it, and nothing will shake you. Nothing will harm you. The psalmist says, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. He saves me because he's sure, he's steady, he's dependable, he's reliable. Deuteronomy tells us the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. He's a God of faithfulness. 
When you look around you and you see everything shaking around you and everything unsteady around you, you see uh, protests taking place that turn into riots. And when you see uh, people railing against one another, harming one another, uh, doing egregious acts towards one another, when everything seems to be falling apart, God remains firm and reliable and trustworthy and true. Why? Because he's a God of faithfulness. But what keeps you and I from trusting and resting in that faithfulness? There's a few things we need to kind of close with. One of them is the cares of this world. And brother, we are surrounded by the cares of this world right now, be it coronavirus, be it the economy, be it the, the, the racial situation taking place in our country. The cares of this world weigh on us. You may be worried about your health. You may be worried about your finances. You may be worried about the future of our nation. But in 1 Peter 4, 7, we read, Give all your worries and cares to God. Why? Because He cares for you. Not only does He care for you, He protects you, provides you, supports you, supplies everything you need. He's a great God and He's a faithful God. The other thing that keeps us from resting in God's faithfulness are feelings of self-pity. Oh, woe is me. I can't believe this is happening to me. Why me? Why now? Why not somebody else? And in Psalm 42, 11, we read, Why am I discouraged, the psalmist writes? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. What a great couple of questions to ask yourself when you're going through your period of self-pity, to ask yourself, why, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I've got a great God. I've got a faithful God. I've got a dependable God, a trustworthy and true God. I will put my hope in Him. It's taking your focus off of what's making you sad. And some of you need to get off of social media. Some of you need to stop looking at the news and start reading your Bible. Stop panicking about everything you see on social media. I had a young man send me a, a, a video um, done by a, a African-American gentleman, and it, it was a very long video, and it was him basically um, giving his take on all that's taking place with the, the racial unrest going on in America right now. And by the end of the video, he's, he's basically trying to set up that this may be um, all being orchestrated and perpetrated. And he asked me my opinion. And my opinion was, I don't know. And honestly, I don't care. Now, I'm not saying I don't care about what's going on in our country, that I don't care about racial unrest or, or racial injustice. I'm telling him I don't care what this gentleman is saying because he doesn't know the truth, I don't know the truth, and the truth is we can't know the truth. The only truth I know is that which I find in the Scriptures. And I said, stop wasting your time watching these videos and go to the Word of God because that's the only place you're going to find truth. And we're your only, only, the only place you're going to find solutions to the problems we're going through. So when those feelings of self-pity come, turn to the Word, and you'll be reminded of the faithfulness of God. The third problem that keeps us from resting in God's faithfulness is self-reliance. This is a huge one. 
We just depend on us. But Proverbs tells us we can make our plans, we can come up with our solution to our problems, but it's the Lord who determines our steps. We can come up with all kinds of elaborate plans to take care of whatever is our problem, but God's got a better solution. And if we would only rest in His faithfulness, but we are a self-reliant people, we are a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps kind of people. And yet, as followers of Jesus Christ, and as children of God, we should be leaning on Him and His provision and His power, and we should be finding our hope and rest in His faithfulness. Well, the fourth one is this, dissatisfaction and doubt concerning God's ways. Isn't it amazing when anything takes a turn for the worse in our life, we begin to become doubtful about God's word. We become dissatisfied with the way he's doing things. We begin to wonder about his promises. And see, this is exactly what the enemy does at times like these. It's exactly what he did to Eve when he tempted her with the forbidden fruit. And he said, surely God hasn't said. He began to get her to doubt the word of God, the veracity of God, the truthfulness of God. And that's what happens in times like these when we find ourselves in, in circumstances what we don't understand and that we don't like. We begin become dissatisfied with God's will and God's way. And we begin to doubt that He knows what's best. And so our, our rest in His faithfulness dissipates. But I love this from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 9. Does the clay dispute with the one who shapes it, saying, stop, you're doing it wrong? Now, this is a ludicrous uh, question, and the answer is obviously no. No potter has ever had the clay speak to him and go, I don't like what you're doing. I don't like the way you're making me. You're doing this all wrong. But that's exactly what you and I do to God who is molding and shaping our lives and the circumstances surrounding our lives. We question God. We become dissatisfied. We don't like what he's doing. Does the pot exclaim, how clumsy can you be? And see, when you begin to express your dissatisfaction with your lot in life, you're basically saying to God Almighty, how clumsy can you be? Do you not know what you're doing? Do you have no clue what's happening in my life? And when that happens, you begin to doubt his faithfulness. And you begin to lose sight of the fact that he's your rock. He's your strong tower. He's your anchor in the daily storms of life. Proverbs tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do and he will show you which path to take. Trust in the Lord. Rest in his faithfulness. Depend on who he is and you will find him to be faithful every time, every day, and in every way. Well, for your discussion questions, I have three for you. Uh, really two discussion questions and, and then a passage I want you to look at. The first discussion question is, which of the following keeps you from resting in God's faithfulness? Worldly cares, self-pity, self-sufficiency, or dissatisfaction and doubt with his ways? Which of those four prevents you from really trusting in and resting on the faithfulness of God? 
Secondly, what are some specific ways you've experienced God's faithfulness in your life? Where He has shown up, where He has proven Himself to be true, where His promises have uh, been fulfilled, and you can see it. See, sometimes what we need to do is look back and see just how faithful He has been. We looked back and saw how He was faithful to Noah. We saw how He was faithful to Abraham. We saw how He was faithful to the promise spoken through Isaiah the prophet to bring about Emmanuel. He was faithful to Mary. And He's faithful to us in so many ways each and every day, but sometimes we fail to remember His faithfulness. Then finally, I want you to read and discuss 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 13. Just read it, think about it, meditate on it, and then share with someone else what it tells you about the faithfulness of God. Well, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you are a faithful, trustworthy, reliable, true God who always does what you say you will do. Every promise you have ever made has been fulfilled or will be fulfilled. You're not done yet. Uh, this is not the end. This is not heaven. And so you have things yet in store that have yet to be fulfilled, but they will be fulfilled. And everything that you have told us you will do will be accomplished. Every promise of provision, protection, support, Father, is there for us to grab hold of and lean on because you're a faithful God. Lord, we, we need to know and remember just how faithful you are and how faithful you will be because you're not done yet. And I praise you for all that you're going to do in the days, the weeks, and the months of, ahead as we rest in you and trust in you because you are a faithful God. And I pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, have a great week. Have a great time discussing these questions. And then next week, we're going to wrap up this series. We're going to, we're going to kind of bring this thing to a close. And I'll share with you next week what we plan to do uh, in the weeks ahead as we can continue to study God's Word together and encourage one another when we can't get together physically. I love you, and I hope to see you soon. Bye.